a Podcast One production. Welcome to The Alternative Truth, a series where we debunk the myths and spin on health and wellbeing. Hi, my name's Mailing Dory, a lifestyle curious medical doctor, public health expert, and strategist. One thing I've learned is that what we think is right when it comes to health often isn't. So I've set out to talk with some of the world's most esteemed medical experts and frontline wellbeing innovators to find out the alternative truth. In this episode, we talked about what really works in the world of beauty. Our first guest was Mukti, author and founder of Mukti Organic. She gave us the lowdown on what some of our most popular beauty products contain and how they can affect us. We were then joined by Dr. Michael Rich, leading specialist dermatologist and founder of Enrich Dermatology in Armidale. He drew on his 30 years in practice to give us a medical perspective on what the evidence suggests when it comes to keeping our skin looking its best. Mukti is educated in complementary medicine and she spent more than two decades exploring how to use natural ingredients for non-toxic skincare. She is an award-winning botanical formulation and recently published her first book, Truth in Beauty. She's now on a mission to connect people to nature and beauty regimes that are good for them. Mukti, welcome to The Alternative Truth. Hi, May. Thank you. You know a lot about what it takes to keep our skin well. And I wanted to start off by asking you a bit about how on earth you got onto this journey. Where did it all begin? I guess it began when I was growing up and my mother was a model and I used to watch her get ready for fashion parades and put her makeup on. So I always had a fascination with beauty um, from, from a young age. And then my grandfather was also an apothecary in Sweden and I guess in some ways it was in the family lineage or the blood, so to speak. And and plant medicine has always fascinated me. I've always enjoyed being in the garden. That's where I found my sense of self when I was really young. I'd spend a lot of time digging around in the earth and gardening with my mum and planting. And I enjoyed that connection with the earth. So I guess plant medicine was the next natural evolution in my journey. How did you begin inventing? So I have a background in uh, traditional medicine or complementary medicine, and I had an interest in aromatherapy and medicinal herbs. And so when I was looking for a product that I wanted to use on my clients when I studied beauty therapy later on, I was looking for a range. This is back in the late 90s, so... um, This is valid for then, but I couldn't find a a product range that I wanted to use on my clients that met the criteria at the time. And this is prior to there being any certified organic skincare standard. So I set about researching and formulating my own skincare products that I wanted to use on my clients, which was started with a cleanser and a moisturizer and then morphed into a few other products. And then when I couldn't understand what was happening from a formulating perspective. My science background kicked in and I wanted to uh, look at what was happening on a more micro level. So then I went on and studied cosmetic chemistry and worked out what was happening when I was making things and they weren't working out how I wanted them to work out. 
So when you were in cosmetic chemistry, what did you discover about, I guess, I'm, I'm just trying to rack my brains of like what products we were all using back then, but what did you discover about what we were putting on our skin day to day? So back then, green chemistry was in its infancy and there weren't really that many raw materials to choose from. Things like surfactants, which is the this foaming part of a product and preservation, which obviously preserves your product and emulsifiers, which hold your oil and water together. They were quite limited as far as what we could use as formulators back then. So I guess in some ways I was a bit of a pioneer, but it was fairly Bobby basic and the formulations back then were fairly Bobby basic, but now it's evolved because there's a demand or a movement, I I would say now, as far as mindful beauty is concerned, and people are looking for cleaner options because there is a realisation that we do absorb certain amount of uh, chemicals depending on their molecular structure. And I think that people are taking a more precautionary approach when it comes to minimising their exposure to certain chemicals. Do you think that alongside that, the efficacy of those like Bobby Basic products has shifted? Have, have Are we demanding more of beauty products nowadays? Like what have you seen in your time at the, at the beauty counter? Yes, so absolutely. There's been a, a huge evolution in the last 20 years since I began formulating. And there are so many um, efficacious products on available on the market. It really depends on how they're put together and the complexity of the formulation um, and how all those ingredients work synergistically. So what I've done now is I've incorporated native Australian extracts into a lot of my products that are used on the face and they have very bioactive uh, constituents that are still the same. The way that they're extracted uh, replicates how they are in nature. So they've been, they've learned how to deal with very adverse weather conditions and they're very potent as far as the constituents like polyphenols and vitamins and their antioxidant capabilities. Uh, A good well-known one that most people would know of in Australia is the kakadu plum, which has one of the highest available sources of vitamin C. And I use that throughout my products. So that's one example of a good resource or a plant that has amazing capabilities and abilities with feeding and nurturing the skin. Because I think for any of us that have like a cupboard full of stuff, we know that we've got to wash our face, we've got to get the stuff off. And then I guess moisturiser is, everyone's like, well, we have dry skin, you moisturise your skin. What difference can the right product make to someone's overall appearance? And I guess more broadly, you know, things down downstream. So when it comes to your actives in a product and you're looking for a product to make a cosmetic difference or to have an impact on the skin, those ingredients need to be there in a substantial amount as opposed to a label claim. So one of the things that I point out in the book is how to read a label and the best way to do that is to divide it into thirds and then the top third of the label you'll be seeing your actives or your the majority of the ingredients in there and that's where you want to see those sorts of actives that have got the claims in there and they, they should be at anywhere between 1% to 2%. So you'll be looking at the middle third of the label for any of your constituents that are on the front of the label as a claim. So they need to be in there at an amount that is going to have an effect. And that needs to be based on the clinical trials and studies that are done by 
the manufacturer of that particular ingredient. So when we're kind of wandering into Priceline and we pick up a big tub of Pond's cream or <laughs> Mokti's making a face, everyone, <laughs> what am I getting? You're probably getting water and the most that you could hope for with something like that would be a bit of superficial hydration, which will make your skin feel a little bit better and it'll probably protect it from the elements, but it's not going to make any changes to your skin. There's a lot of myths passed down from woman to woman and generation to generation. If there was a message that you wanted to get out into the marketplace about where are we wasting our time? So there's this assumption that everything that is for sale has been tested or is regulated And that is not, unfortunately, entirely correct. So you have to take onus upon yourself to become educated and to become a bit of a label sleuth and detective. So one of the things that I did when I wrote my book was I put myself in the shoes of the consumer because it is a complete minefield to understand and decipher a label and to do that quickly. I mean, you don't want to spend hours standing unless you're like me and you're obsessed with Um, anything and everything to do with skincare and ingredients, but you don't want to spend hours sitting there or standing there looking in the aisle, looking through the products that you're about to choose. So there's some simple things that you need to look for when it comes to reading a label. And um, one of those is that I was mentioning before is dividing into thirds and then looking for uh, certain claims. So certified organic, for example, by a recognized third party. So in Australia, you'd be looking for Australian certified organic, or you'd be looking at organic food chain. They're both quite well known. In America, you'd be looking at USDA. And then each country also has its different regulations and standards when it comes to organic skincare. But you really have to be looking at more of the plant-based, so botanical species as being the majority of what you're reading on the label as opposed to a lot of chemical names. So look out for things like aloe vera barbadensis, macadamia alternifolia, anything that sounds like it comes from a plant or is plant-derived. Mukti, one thing that I've noticed about your products is they're all in brown glass. Tell us a bit about that. Why are they all in brown glass? Well, it's actually not brown. It's it's actually purple and oh. it's called biophotonic glass. And it stems back to the ancient Egyptians and they used to store their balms and elixirs in glass with iron oxide particles in there and it only lets certain spectrum of the light in there. And it energizes and helps to preserve the products and they resonate at certain hertz, which is similar to our own uh, nervous system. So that's all been scientifically proven. And one of the things that they did with experimenting with this glass was they took cherry tomatoes and they put them in clear glass, in brown glass, in blue glass and green glass, which are often just tinted uh, uh, clear glass anyway. And then they took it and the cherry tomato and put it in the mirror glass and sealed the jars and then left them for a period of seven months. And in every other receptacle, the cherry tomato had decomposed except for the mirror and glass. And that was just at an ambient room temperature. So it proved the point that it was a very good receptacle for storing. The other thing with plastics is the concern about leaching and phthalates. So you need to be very careful in relation to actives, 
essential oils, for example, would leach into plastic and create some sort of chemical reaction. So it is important to look at what the products that you're using are stored in and also from an environmental perspective as well and a biodegradable perspective. So, but what about, you know, you're on the hop, you've landed in Sydney, you walk into David Jones, there's like all this cool stuff in the beauty section. You're like, I just want to look good and I've left all my stuff back home. Is there any anywhere I can go in a mainstream department store beauty, beauty hall? I would be I mean, heading to the supermarket and going and buying a big jar of certified organic coconut oil because you can cleanse your skin with that and it will also moisturize your skin. Unless you've got very oily skin and it's comedogenic, then that's where I would be heading and it's a lot cheaper too. Okay, this is like, this is um, probably quite a shock for most people that you, so you wouldn't buy any anything in that beauty hall? Um, probably not. Why not? Because I'm a label sleuth and most of those ingredients that are in those products, unless I could find something that was certified organic, I probably wouldn't be using it on my body. Do we know what the long-term impact or even the medium-term impact of using these products like year after year on our skin is? Well, what we do know now is that there are more and more ingredients that are coming to light. So a typical one that I will use as an example would be talcum powder. So Johnson & Johnson talcum powder, which has been directly linked now to ovarian cancer and there's a lot of litigation happening right now in relation to that. There's other ingredients like... Um, Resorcinol that's found in hair dyes, triclosan, which is found in hand washes. Hang on washes. a minute. I think almost every woman is like dyeing their hair now. Yeah. So where do we go? Well, there are alternatives. There are cleaner hairdressers now and there are cleaner options. So your dark hair colours usually have resorcinol in them. So that's one example. Um, lead is still found in lipstick. That's a known neurotoxin. We don't even use it in petrol in our cars anymore. Uh, the latest one off the latest cab off the rank oh is <laughs> oxybenzone, which is used in a lot of sunscreens globally, and that's now been restricted f- for use. Uh, I know Hawaii have banned it, so that's being regulated right now. Phthalates, we know about that they're known endocrine disruptors. Parabens, of course, we know that they uh, mimic estrogen, so they're endocrine disrupting chemicals. EDCs or endocrine disrupting chemicals are the ones as a woman that I would be most concerned about and looking at avoiding. So where are these products? Like these, so we're going to say that one more time, like EDCs, so endocrine disrupting chemicals. They're found in, in a lot of products, a lot of mainstream products. So again, as I mentioned, all those ingredients before, so resorcinol, parabens, oxybenzone, Thylates, diethyl thylate is found in, in perfumes and so, it's a solvent and a, um, a plasticizer, so it's found in nail polish as well. So I always say to people, if you're going to start this journey, the best place, because it is overwhelming and it can be a little bit frightening, but fear-mongering and statistics and, and everything else aside, I think the best place to start is to take into consideration products that you use on a daily basis, products that cover all of your body, Uh, products that you inhale or ingest. So if you're going to do the step one, two, three, I would recommend to look at your deodorant and there's plenty of good natural alternatives available. I would also look at your body lotion, which covers all of your body. And I'd look at anything that you inhale or ingest. I'd be looking at your lipstick and your toothpaste. So 
let's say there's four things there that I would look at swapping out immediately. You know, most of us kind of are blissfully ignorant and go along trusting anything in a shiny packet, but why aren't our regulators more onto this or are they onto it? Look, I think, you know, it's a multi-billion dollar industry and for change to happen, it, it's a slow process. Unilever and Procter & Gamble, which are two of the biggest manufacturers of household personal care products and cleaning products, are now going to start writing on their packaging and their products the constituents of the fragrances that they're using because they've realised now that a lot of people have fragrance allergies and sensitivities to fragrance found in their washing powders and also in their cleaning products. So this is a great initiative and, and, and the beginning, I think, of what we're going to start seeing unrolling over the next 10 to 20 years. But as you would appreciate from a medical perspective is that these sorts of studies are quite difficult you know, we can look at tobacco as an example, as a formidable example. We can look at DDT as another example um, that we've learnt from in the past. So these are good examples of um, how how things change, but it does take time and, and industry is slow to make these changes. But I think with more consumer awareness and people asking questions and with higher incidences and rates of, of cancer and people having sensitivities to fragrances, uh, as an example, then people will become a little more aware. And I think mothers in particular too, when they're thinking of conceiving or they have children, the first instinct is to protect. And so that's usually when people will start to make the transition or look at making the transition. So this is about, on the positive side, it's about harm minimization. It's about stacking the cards in your favor. It's becoming a more aware and informed consumer. And then looking at it from a more environmental perspective, it's about where are all these byproducts and all these chemicals going to? What does this industry, uh, you know, the impact that this industry has on, on the environment as a whole? If most of our waterways are now polluted, you know, we need to look at it globally, not just what we're using from a cosmeceutical perspective. We need to take into account how that's affecting and impinging upon the ecology and the whole ecosystem as well. I'm keen to understand whether you feel, is there ever a role for traditional medicine or invasive techniques if people want to look good? You know, there's a lot of conflicting information around essential oils as an example of a, a natural ingredient that could cause an adverse effect. So I always say to people, always test on the inside of your arm. We provide samples for that purpose. And then um, if there is any adverse effect, then you discontinue use. But I have a few products like a, a marigold cream, which is very popular. It's good for anyone who has skin sensitivities. I'm about to do a sensitive range, which is nut oil free. It's fragrance free, so it doesn't have essential oils in it. And it's a very basic formula for people who have become sensitized. And a lot of people are sensitized to many different things, including natural ingredients as well. But can I fix my wrinkles in the same way that those mainstream products promise? I think <laughs> you've got to look a little bit deeper. And as a, as, a, as a medical doctor, you would also appreciate that you need to look at the whole organism and whatever you're putting into your body is obviously going to have an effect on how you look and how you feel. So we've got to look at um, our diet and our lifestyle uh, in order to have deliver the results that we um, might want. So rather than just 
relying on a cream to produce some miraculous results. It needs to be a holistic lifestyle approach. So, you know, if you're going to go out and, and get smashed on a Friday night, then Saturday you're going to probably wake up with puffy eyes and your skin's probably not going to look so great either. And those toxins that are in your body uh, are going to come out. So, you you know, it's a holistic approach. Well, I think that's that's the tough love. That's the truth. Um, Mukti, thank you very much for coming in today and sharing your insights. Thank you so much. Listening to Mukti, I came away thinking that the true long-term impact of the products we use, let alone the combinations, are effectively unknown. At the same time, I was left wondering, how effective is a non-toxic product compared to something which has been engineered? And if something is synthetic and makes me look and feel better in the short term, does it really matter? But before we answer that, let's hear from our next guest, Dr. Michael Rich. Michael is a specialist dermatologist who has a focus on cosmetic dermatology and surgery, not to be confused with cosmetic practitioners as he's a member of the Australian College of Dermatologists. It's fair to say Michael really knows skin. What are some of the strange things that people do that that really make you think, oh, my God? Well, people go on overseas junkets for cosmetic treatment. And, for example, I had a lady who went for liposuction to Malaysia with her sister who was starting a new business in liposuction. And she was the first patient. And she oh came God. back damaged, infected, and inflamed, as an example. And... People have treat, treatments in Thailand. I think it's a holiday and it's cheap and you've got no recourse and, and that's quite difficult. The other thing people do is, for example, even simple things like uh, what's very popular today is uh, botulinum toxin, Botox or Dysport injections and fillers. And people go and pick out the cheapest injector. They will never go to a cheap hairdresser. They'll never get a dress for their wedding, which is not the best or the nicest looking dress, but they'll go to the cheapest injector, not the best injector. And then they, they look like chip monkeys or duck lips and they're wondering why they don't look normal. And, and friends say, what have you done? And so this is, these are things that I see every single day in my life. So just delving into that, because that is a hot topic. I mean, it's hard for us to look anywhere on social media without seeing someone that's had things done. What is good cosmetic practice? First of all, in my practice, for example, only doctors do that type of treatment. But a good cosmetic practice is one that no one can tell. I tell my liposuction patients, if you walk naked, no one should know. If you've had a cosmetic procedure of any sort, no, it should be natural and normal. And if it doesn't look normal, if it looks artificial, it's not a good treatment. But what about the girls that say, I want to I look like the Kardashians, like what? What do you no, say to that? That is a real problem. We actually had a, we have a weekly staff meeting in my practice and we discussed this just last week. Do we reject those patients or not? And some of the doctors in my practice voiced a very strong point of view that if we do that to patients, people will say to them, look, they, they were treated in rich and look what they've done to them and it's not natural. So we're in a position, I think now what we're gonna, we, will, we are telling patients, look, we don't think this is a good look and we're not willing to do something that will distort you. But there's no question some people do want that. Where do you think that's all coming from? I think... Sometimes there's social pressures because uh, those large bottoms with fat injections, for example, and it's risky. All the, that's the most common cause of death with cosmetic procedures, the fat injection, especially in the buttocks. Just go into that. What, like, are you talking about Kim Kardashian, her bottom? Yes, I am talking about her bottom, and I'm talking about in Brazil. I mean, it's so common, the fat injections. But most of the death that have occurred in cosmetic 
practice having fat injections at the bottom. Intrat uh, gets the fat gets into the artery and, and blocks the artery. It can give them a heart attack, give them a stroke, and it's horrific. Uh, so fat injections can be very dangerous and has to be performed by someone who's doing it well. But I used to carry a fat injection as a buttock, but I've actually stopped doing it. I don't think the risk is worth it. Right. And so is this a, is this a new thing? Is this something that someone recently invented? <laughs> Getting fat from somewhere, and well, no, fat has been fat transplant has been around for a long time, and and in fact, it's safer on the face. But even on the face, it's more dangerous than the modern fillers, hyaluronic acid, which we can inject and dissolve. Because your fat, you can't dissolve. So if it gets into the little artery, for example, and it causes blindness, it's very hard to reverse. If on the other hand, you get a, a bit of hyaluronic acid into a blood vessel, you can quickly inject an enzyme, hyaluronidase, which all of us have in our body to, and it destroys cartilage and bone, and the hyaluronidase will immediately dissolve the filler. So at least you've got some scope to act quickly if you see that there's an arterial effect. So, I mean, is what you're saying is that people, if, if a practitioner lets you go in there and, and ask for certain things, if they're extreme things, then that's, that's potentially, like that tells you something about that practitioner. Well... It's been difficult because we have had patients who, who want extra fat on their cheeks and they, they like that slightly distorted look. And it becomes a dilemma, do we do it? Do we cater for the dysmorphia? That's the problem. Do what, we cater for it? What is dysmorphia? Like, unpack that for people who haven't heard that word before. <laughs> the, this, I, I look at it two ways. Uh, one, dysmorphia, and it can, it can be severe psychiatric illness. People are people in psychiatric hospitals with severe dysmorphia. But the one way you look at it is people worry about something that the average person wouldn't walk, worry about. So there's a little mark on their face and no one notices it, but that's all they're focused on. And the other form of dysmorphia that they want to look, which no one, the average person would not want. Right? So if you want like I'm just trying to think of something. If like, you want to have your cheeks look really swollen, look, look like, like a chip monkey, right, or very large lips, like a duck lip, as I've said before, and they really want, that's the look they want. Most people wouldn't want that look, but they do want that, and it's not a normal look. Right, and that's, that's a recent thing in history? Well, it's evolving more and more. I, th- I think aesthetic procedures can become addictive. And so when you have a little, it's a little bit of filler, you think, oh, I wouldn't mind a bit more and a bit more. And you start looking at yourself in an objective manner. Zooming out to the more general population, you see what, what, what makes up the bread and butter of what walks in your jaw and the things that you're passionate about seeing people do? Uh, the thing that I'm passionate about is not really aesthetics as much, is I like to treat acne scarring. I think it is disfiguring and, and it really affects adolescents at a very important time in their life. So we can improve scars of all types. I, I think, uh, and not only that, but for example, piercing, often the piercing can cause severe keloids and thickened scars. And so I like, to me, that's real medicine and real pathology. So that is important. Uh, so controlling the acne and then treating the residual, the sequelae, the scarring is important. On that, I want to dive in because there are a lot of products on the market to help acne. Like, you know, what would you say? There's a whole half an aisle, I think, in most chemists. Okay. What's your view well, on that? The acne role for is that? infection of the sebaceous gland. What what happens is I always see acne as an equation. Genetics plus hormones lead to acne. And what happens is that, this, that those hormones affect the sebaceous glands, the glands that produce oil and lead to a block in those glands. There's a blockage and leads, that leads to secondary infection uh, for one gland or sometimes a few glands joins up, up and you get a cyst infection. Now, anything that blocks that gland, anything that plugs it will increase the tendency for 
blockage and infection inflammation. So the first thing in acne, moisturizers, is no-go zone. And you see all this preparation, which are oily and have a, uh, they moisturize the skin and they all make their acne worse. So that the t tendency to use a moisturizer every day is really harmful for acne. In most cases, people don't need moisturizers full stop. I think it's a trillion dollar- At all. It's a trillion dollar cosmetic racket, in my humble opinion. Right, But the point is that painting the wall does not make the wall structurally stronger. And therefore, putting a moisturiser on will feel nice. If it's, if it's got a nice fragrance, it will have a nice aesthetics. If you have a nice jar, it even looks nicer. Will it have an anti-aging effect? No, it won't. But if you put one of those products onto an acne-prone skin, you'll, make, you'll aggravate the acne and you'll potentiate and make it worse. Are there any products that can anti-age us, like for real? Yeah, there are some products that have a therapeutic benefit, and the best one by a long way is a 50 plus sunblock. I mean, there's no better anti-aging topical than sun protection. Uh, and it has to be a UVB and a UVA block. And the government changed the law in recent times with, that companies could label their products to 50 plus SPF, which is UVB, the sunburn spectrum. Most are way above that, 80, 90, 100. But to be 50 plus, you have to have at least one third UVA. That's what was in solarium. So the light that doesn't burn, that doesn't blister, but goes deeper, that ages, wrinkles, and causes melanomas and skin cancers. So people... Young females went to the solarium, got UVA, got a short-term colour change, and with that they got a death sentence. So it was a minor problem, but uh, fortunately solariums are banned. But a UVA block with a UVB is the best anti-aging treatment. So, Michael, we've touched on like how things can block up your skin if you know if we're putting moisturiser on acne. It's, it's not only not going to help us, it's probably going to make us worse. A lot of us have been raised with this notion that what you eat affects your skin or your oil production. Is that true? Well, that's, a, that's an interesting question. For years, we didn't believe so. There's no question there's a good reason to have a healthy diet and eat well. Very good reason for many reasons, for heart disease, joint disease, even evidence for dementia. So a good diet is really important. You know, the red fruits, the berries, the vegetables, there's no doubt. The question is, what's the story with acne? And in, there has been some studies in recent times showing that a high glycemic diet, high sugar diet, is, can be negative in acne and potentiate acne. In years gone by, I suppose we used to say chocolate could make acne worse. There was no real evidence for that. But I think a high sugar diet is not helpful in acne. Do you think that you can, there, there are products out there in the market where they would say you can drink this collagen milkshake and make your skin better. No, Does I, that have any merit? No, I, I think avoidance of sugary food is helpful, but I don't think any dietary factor will help your acne. There's some evidence to show that zinc can be a little bit helpful, but not as much as other therapeutic measures. But what about anti-aging effects? Anti-aging, a healthy diet with lots of red fruits and lots of vegetables and reducing uh, sugars, a low GI, a low GI diet has a wonderful effect on many facets of our life. In regards to aging on the skin, no, some protection, yes. I'm not sure about the food in that regards. Okay. What about the clean beauty movement? You know, there's a lot of chat about green products and organics. What's your perspective? My perspective on that is that anything that works and is helpful is worthwhile. If it, do, if it doesn't work, it's not worthwhile. So like, as I said, I think a moisturiser is of no benefit. Now, I'm not against organic products, but organic doesn't make something safe. Keep in mind, poison ivy is organic, arsenic is organic, snake venom is, orga is organic and natu all natural. Right? <laughs> Would you want them? Uh, 
The point of bad lead is not natural. You see a lot of lead in the soil. What I'm saying is show me the evidence it works. I'm open to it. But I would like natural medicines and organic products to undergo the same scientific study as traditional medicine. You cannot release... Like, for example, in acne, we said anti-aging and anti-acne, a retinoic acid that definitely has a benefit in stopping collagen, elastic fiber degeneration, also helps unblock the glands and helps acne. But there was years of research and they did studies using that against a, a, a placebo cream, a cream that has no therapeutic benefit, and they showed that it works with the organics by all means, but show me the proof. I want to see the studies done. And the problem with a lot of natural products, there's no such studies, right? And there's not, so give it to a thousand people and give it to a thousand people, get a, a cream without that ingredient and show us the proof it works. If they have it, wonderful. But show me, show me that. I think on that point, there is a lot of messaging out there in the public sphere that is very, very confusing. Are there things that the press says or that get marketed that just send you bonkers? Well, I think, I mean, there's a number of things. The press, I think, sometimes vilify people who, look, who do seek therapeutic benefit. And, and really, if someone is affected, for example, I mentioned acne scarring before, but there's lots of conditions where people are emotionally affected. And if, if giving them a therapeutic benefit, if they are self-conscious about a bunny line and it, or a frown and they What's a bunny line? That's the wrinkle on top of the nose, right, which can put a little botch on tox, toxin, nearly nothing and, get, and eradicate it. Or a gummy smile. When you smile, your gums are showing. And if that's an embarrassing facet, you can inject a little botulinum toxin and that you can't see the gums when you smile anymore. So I don't see that... that someone having a, an aesthetic procedure, they, they should be vilified if it's important to them. No, should, no one should invalidate anyone, but keep in mind with dysmorphia that you treat the, those patients appropriately. The, I'll digress again. The problem with dysmorphia is that sometimes when you give people who have a dysmorphic personality who seek treatment unjustifiably, if you treat them, you, you validate the them that there is a problem and in fact and it's from a psychological psychiatric point of view it can be a negative so you've got to be careful with those patients and then the press is um, I think influenced by the the marketing I mean um, with all the money that's spent by uh, the companies who who sell all these cosmetic creams and all these preparations of course they, so they have features in the newspaper saying how good it is, how wonderful it is, and they have uh, diff- the different companies, even at the races, have marquees and so on. And the way they market it is that it indicates that it's a benefit. But as I said, most of it is of no benefit. That's a that's a big statement to make, and one which I'm sure you know is backed up by your years of experience. But are there beyond sunscreen? Like, what can we use? What should what products well, should we use? I just mentioned the retinoic acid. Yeah. And retinol can have benefits. It's about one twentieth as strong, but that's a cosmeceutical that helps. Uh, niacinamide definitely has anti-aging effects topically, right? Um, uh, the, definitely the alpha and hydroxy acids, uh, glycolic acid and so on, uh, and uh, the, the fruit acids uh, and the beta-hydroxy salicylic acid have anti-aging effects. Glycerin can be of benefit to s- certain skin types. So there are ingredients that are benefit. Where do we buy these things? Like, where, Is it just your office or dermatology no, office no, or where buy, can we find I mean, them? There's brands. Uh, there are brands that you can buy. You can buy glycolic acids. The S4 items like retinoic acid, you do need a prescription. And then I have preparations in my, in my rooms for my own patients because I can't sell these things. So I, I, 
we provide as part of the service to my patients. Well, we have the S4 ingredients included in some of the preparations with the vitamin C as an antioxidant, uh, which depends what you're treating. If you've got a sun-damaged pigmented skin, it's different than you looking at treating elastic and wrinkling and so on. The last question I have is around, you know, what I'd say 90% of women and probably some men are doing, which is like heading into the department store, you know, that beauty floor on the ground floor and shopping up big. Would you, is there anything in there you'd recommend we buy? Not too much. Look, to be honest, again, I find it hard to compete with the people who have a two-hour training session at David Jones or Myers and how can a dermatologist compete with that? That's the, the, the way they sell their products and the marketing is so effective that often I advise patients not to buy those type of preparations, but they come back with a whole lot of them and because they've been influenced by people who aren't well-trained. Um, so it, it, there is a lot of pressure for people to buy these type of preparations. But no, I'm not a believer that there's much in the way of as, co- cosmetic preparations that are a benefit to the skin. That doesn't mean that from an aesthetic point of view, from a pleasurable point of view, some creams are nice to put on, they feel good. And if it gives a sensual pleasure, by all means do it as long as it's not harmful. But if you're expecting a significant therapeutic benefit, no, you won't get it. Now, in regards to facials, it's difficult because a lot of uh, people out near, uh, carrying out aesthetic procedures, uh, the non-medical practitioners, facials are very common. And I'm, I'm not personally a, a fan of facials. Facials are aggressive and irritating. And if I've got inflamed skin and if I've got a, a wound on my arm, would I scrub it with soap? So if I, you've got acne or eczema and you, do, you carry out a facial, that's irritating. It can only aggravate it. And... One of the stories I've often tell is I was once in the gym next to two very attractive ladies and one lady next to me was on a bike with a friend and she's telling a friend, don't look at me, um, I look terrible. I have a facial every four weeks and for a few days I look terrible. It's all right in between. So here's this stunningly beautiful girl who looks normal except for two days a week after she has a facial for, and the facial gives her no therapeutic benefit whatsoever. I can't understand why you spend your money not to look good for a few days without any benefit. It doesn't make sense to me. Michael, thank you very much. That was a tour de force through the world of like evidence and beauty. And um, if people want to find you, High Street, Armadale. Yes, thank you. Listening to Michael and Mukti, there is no doubt that beauty is big business. It would seem that most of us are not really getting what we paid for, or in other cases, only what we bought. Michael staked his 30 years against anything from a department store or beauty counter in favour of sunscreen, serums and laser to stimulate our natural biology. If we accept the idea that the skin is like the dashboard of a car, then seeing a dermatologist means getting under the hood. Mukti made a strong argument for thinking consciously about the number and quality of products we use. Whilst historically the benefits of clean and green beauty have been hard to evidence, the information about the cumulative impact of endocrine disruptors is growing. And the longer we live, arguably, the more significant this is to our health. What I find most interesting is that both our guests, for different reasons, caution against consuming a lot of mainstream product. The conversation also left me wondering, if a facial makes you feel better, isn't that worth something towards looking better? Likewise, does a generation now propped up by laser, filler and Botox create a false new norm? Are we just avoiding our immortality? As is so often the case on the alternative truth, there aren't many final answers. There are, however, plenty of questions. Thanks for joining us. 
Alternative Truth is recorded in the studios of Podcast One Australia. Executive producer is Grant Tothill. The producer is Sarah Greenberg. Audio producer, Darcy Thompson. For more episodes, head to podcastone.com.au. I'm Mark Pesci, and I'm exploring the future of tech with my podcast, The Next Billion Seconds. Listen for free at podcastoneaustralia.com.au, search The Next Billion Seconds podcast, or download the new Podcast One Australia app. Podcast One.